Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Good morning, uh, colleagues and friends. I uh, hope you're doing well. Uh, it is a spectacular spring morning uh, here in Connecticut. Um, unfortunately, we have events that, that we have to be reminded of, and today's Grand Rounds will bring this to, to the forefront. Uh, but uh, what has happened in, in Buffalo and California uh, is just something that reminds us of how difficult it is with, uh, with uh, gunfire and, and uh, you know, violence that still takes place in, in our country. And uh, the, you know, the story from Buffalo is just something that is uh, terribly sad and, uh, and something that we must do some, uh, you know, something to change. And uh, what, what, is, what is good here, Connecticut Children's, is that our injury prevention, uh, the leadership of, of Kevin and, and Brendan and, and many others really is making a difference. And, and you'll see today, you know, the kinds of things that we can do to have meaningful, actionable items that each one of us can, can own and begin to change the dynamic of, of this terrible gunfire pandemic that we have seen in the United States of America, like in no other place, no other country in the world, frankly. Uh, so it is something that we have to learn about. Uh, so before I start with just a couple of remarks and ask Dr. Campbell to introduce the, the lecture, I just want a few take a pause and take a few minutes, a moment of silence for the victims in Buffalo and in California from this past weekend. Thank you. Uh, a couple more things. Uh, you know, this week, believe it or not, is, uh, is the Emergency Medical Services Week. And uh, I want to thank all of our colleagues who provide critical life-saving care to our patients here at Connecticut Children's. Uh, all you have to do is head down to the, e the emergency department any time now, and you'll see how busy they are. This is just really remarkable. The past uh, two months have been uh, highly you know, unusual. And in the month of May, usually things have quieted down. But uh, all of you who are providing those services, thank you. It is very, very busy. Uh, so you know, if you do see someone from, from the emergency department, from the urgent care, uh, you know, give them a, a hug, a virtual hug. If you're, you know, if it's a COVID-compliant hug, I guess you you could do that also. Uh, make sure you do that, please. It's really, really important. And thank you for for what you do. Now, today's grand rounds will be uh, a combination of uh, of three of our stars: uh, Dr. Borup, Dr. Campbell, and Dr. Gleska. And what you will hear is uh, is is how they can think differently about preventing firearm injuries in children, uh, which is again, as a pandemic, as I mentioned before. And our Injury Prevention Center here really is state-of-the-art, you know, worldwide. Uh, what they have done through the years is really remarkable. And recently, this week, or I think or maybe last week, uh, we learned some uh, terrific news that uh, the city of Hartford has awarded 
Connecticut Children's, uh, $2 million to really help uh, address this issue, begin to address this issue in conjunction with the other trauma centers in the city uh, in, in Hartford and, and Trinity Healthcare. And Brenda may tell you a little bit about that in just a minute. Uh, and so really, thank, congratulations to the, the Injury Prevention Center, to OCCH for just getting this done. I mean, tremendous, tremendous work, and I think you, you will see the, the outcome of that. Uh, to introduce our, our lecturer, and he'll be part of the, of the speakers, uh, is Dr. Campbell. Everyone, I think, knows Dr. Campbell. He seems to be everywhere. Um, and uh, in fact, I think he was on call last night, and he was running around everywhere. So he's a, a, a bundle of energy that just keeps on moving. Um, and brings excellence uh, in, in, the, in the work that he does. Uh, and, and he will introduce the, the, the special lecture today, that, and he will introduce the, the reason for the lecture that, that we do on a, on a yearly basis. Uh, uh, so Brendan is professor of pediatrics and surgery at the University of Connecticut. He's one of our uh, outstanding pediatric surgeons, and, and he co-leads the Injury Prevention Center with Dr. Barb. So Kevin, if you can come up and introduce, I'm sorry, Brendan, not Kevin. Kevin is sitting over there. <laughs> so if you could introduce the lecture. Great. Um, thanks, Juan, for that uh, generous uh, introduction. Um, let me go back here for a second. Um, so just to, a little bit of brief history of the Svok lecture. You know, we talk about this every year, but Mark Svok was um, uh, a boy who had a great potential and was killed in a car crash in uh, West Hartford uh, about uh, almost 20 years ago now. And we, we hold this lecture every year in his honor. And while our trauma system wasn't able to uh, save Mark Svok's life, a lot of changes have occurred in the aftermath of Mark's injury, which have allowed us to not only save the lives of others who had similar injuries, but have allowed us to develop a trauma center, which allows us to prevent injuries from occurring uh, in, in our patients. And we're gonna to talk to you a little bit about that this morning and hopefully provoke some thinking about how we can prevent injuries uh, in this country uh, in a way you might not have thought about uh, before. Uh, so none of the uh, presenters this morning, including myself, uh, Dr. Borup, Dr. Dukleska, have any financial disclosures. Uh, I'm gonna set up uh, a lecture on some of the work that's occurring through the Injury Prevention Center by providing a little bit of history about firearm injury let's uh, uh, talk a little bit about the epidemiology. And lastly, uh, just frame why and how we can think differently about this problem. So uh, firearms have been a part of American uh, culture for a very long time, and we've had them in our homes, uh, we've had militias, but, uh, but it's a very different time in 2022. Uh, and uh, we have to begin to think differently about how we can make firearm ownership as safe as possible in this country. Well, this um, rendition of uh, the, the Big Bad Wolf and Little Red Riding Hood uh, seems preposterous with Little Red Riding Hood holding an assault rifle. Uh, the events that transpired in Buffalo this weekend and what we see happening other times uh, make it not so outrageous as it might first appear. Uh, for those of you old enough to remember what happened at Kent State when um, uh, some military personnel fired on a, a crowd of protesters in 1970. Fast forward to 2019 when Caitlin Bennett picked up her diploma with an assault rifle over her back. And that sort of speaks to the complexities and the uh, polarization that we have around this issue um, in the United States. So a little bit about the epidemiology of the issue, which many of us understand from a medical and public health perspective, but it's important that we understand it also at a social perspective. Uh, so Americans don't really understand the risk involved in firearm ownership, and it's complicated. 
So when you have something like what happened to Bill Pettit and his family in my hometown of Cheshire, Connecticut, it can scare the hell out of you. You know, this, this event happened in a neighborhood that I spent a lot of time in growing up, and it affected a lot of people, a lot of intelligent uh, citizens in our state who were motivated to want to protect their families. And, you know, this is the model of protective firearm ownership, which millions of Americans um, uh, have as part of sort of their reason for owning guns. They think that the world is a dangerous place and the institutions we have won't necessarily protect them. And uh, this is real. I was just talking to one of the CRNAs uh, last night and she was talking about her husband and how they have a small child and he wants to keep a gun for protection. This is the downside of gun ownership. This is a patient that I knew briefly after she shot herself in her head. Uh, and her father, a physician uh, local to the area, uh, was a responsible gun owner, but she found that gun at a difficult time uh, and killed herself. And, uh, but this is something that not everyone who's thinking about owning a gun for personal protection considers. So we've known about the risk of keeping guns in our homes since I was in elementary school. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 1977 and showed that, uh, that there was a, a pretty strong correlation between guns in the home and uh, risk of both accidental and uh, injury with guns and assault by firearm. Uh, fast forward to 2008, uh, the landscape hasn't very much changed. Those states that you see dark on the map here have greater risk of firearm injury, and things correlate pretty closely with the regulation of firearms. States like uh, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Connecticut, California, Washington State uh, tend to do better than some of the states in the Deep South and Midwest that have more lax laws related to uh, firearms. So this is Pediatric Grand Rounds, the Mark Svok Lectureship. We need to talk a little bit about the epidemiology of pediatric uh, gun injury. So about a third of American kids live in a house where at least one firearm is present. Uh, more than 10% uh, these guns are kept loaded and accessible, uh, usually for personal uh, protection. The challenge with kids is developmentally, they don't know how to manage guns. They have unrealistic, parents have unrealistic perceptions of uh, kids' capabilities and behavioral tendencies around guns, their ability to distinguish a real from a fake firearm, a loaded from an unloaded firearm, and what the repercussions of handling a loaded firearm uh, are. And the other big problem with, uh, with kids is that a lot of parents who own firearms believe that active strategies are best, that you can educate kids about how to handle guns safely, when that isn't exactly true. What is the best way is to actually keep uh, firearms loaded and inaccessible. And we've known this for a long time. This is research that came out of Johns Hopkins uh, the year I graduated from college. So fast forward to contemporary times, I think there's a valuable lesson uh, to be learned from this survey of uh, U.S. gun owners in 2016. They were just wanted to get at storage practices, attitudes, and other things that influence the way people store guns in their home. And what was important to learn from this study is that uh, Americans who own guns aren't looking to us for uh, guidance on how to more safely uh, own guns. They're looking to law enforcement, the NRA, military folks. Physicians are down at the bottom of the list. And I think we need to think about that. And, and I think even those of us who, who understand this issue are frustrated and challenged by this, um, this issue that we're not looked for as, as solutions to the problem. 
And for those of you, especially those of you who may be listening in who don't own guns and counsel patients about uh, firearm safety, you ought to read this, uh, this piece written by two, two friends of mine, uh, Emmy Betts and Garen Wintemute. Uh, they really talk about cultural competency, and if you're counseling families on safe gun ownership, they're probably not listening to you if you're not doing it in a way that's culturally competent. So there's the reference for anybody who's interested. So <clears throat> let's go back to uh, 2012, ahead of the Sandy Hook uh, shooting, which we all probably vividly remember where we were, what we were doing when we heard about this. Uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics put out this um, uh, this uh, statement on the prevention of uh, firearm injuries. They recommend that uh, primary prevention is essential and something that we all need to be doing as clinicians who care for kids. What's the problem with this statement? We don't have a proven effective way to provide primary prevention uh, for this issue. So it's a problem and we need to think differently about how we can make a difference um, with this. So here's why uh, it's a problem. Uh, so there's a lot of people who are interested in gun violence. All you got to do is get on social media. Uh, anytime there's an event like happened in Buffalo this weekend, you know, Twitter uh, comes alive. Um, and all these people want to be proactive. They want to make a difference. The problem is the programs that a lot of these individuals develop uh, are not based on theoretical models and they're not based on preliminary effectiveness data. Some of these things you may have heard about, uh, Scared Straight, Eddie Eagle that the NRA developed and using pre and post surveys, which pretty much anybody can use to prove that what they're doing is effective, but it's not always the best way to prove this. So just a couple minutes, I'm gonna talk about some of the ways we can think differently about this. So I love this quote from Mencken, every complex problem has a solution which is simple, direct, plausible, and wrong. So uh, you wanna address this issue with a trauma system public health approach. And that's what uh, doctors uh, Dukleska and Borup are gonna be talking to you about. Communi using community-based injury prevention principles, consensus decision-making about doing what is best for our patients and our fellow citizens. And I think it's also importantly when you're addressing the issue of gun violence to recognize that it's a complex problem and you need to treat it as such. And it's gonna require both short and long-term solutions and it's not gonna be easy to figure this out. One thing that we did a couple years ago is we asked surgeons who are members of the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma what they thought we should do about this issue. This included about 40% of them who were firearm owners. Overwhelming support for federal funding, our right to counsel patients, mandatory background checks, assault weapons ban, and actually requiring gun owners to be 21 years of age. This is impressive. Surgeons, gun owners, all supporting these things. A little bit more troubling when we, we sort of brought this survey to the entire membership of the American College of Surgeons, 42% uh, of these surgeons were gun owners, but of those gun owners, nearly a third store their firearms unlocked and loaded. Uh, th this is something, and it gets back to the issue of protective firearm ownership. It's a real thing that, that a lot of Americans um, are concerned about, hence the reason why a third of gun-owning surgeons are storing their guns um, unlocked and loaded. So briefly tell you about two studies that I've worked on with uh, the firearm injury prevention clinical scholar in the American College of Surgeons, L. Thomas. She's really an amazing person. Um, and uh, two, two of these projects are really cool. So one of them uh, is looking at how stay-at-home orders during COVID impacted the mechanism of firearm injury. 
So what's, what's interesting here is you see this normal sort of sinusoidal wave of injury that uh, you see and predict. So after the stay-at-home waters came out, we saw a predictable drop in the number of injuries, as you'd expect with less social interaction, fewer people driving on the roads. But after uh, a couple of weeks, not only did the number of uh, injuries related to uh, firearms increase, it was well above the expected number. So uh, we don't quite understand why this, is, this occurred, but we think it has to do with a lot of socially vulnerable individuals in our society who were impacted in ways that we could not have predicted by the pandemic. You see that here. Uh, another thing, and this is the last point that I'm going to make before I turn this over uh, to Dr. Dukleska. Um, one of the things that uh, many individuals and groups have have touted is uh, stricter regulation of firearm sales at gun shows. You know, we, we think that uh, there's a lot of firearm sales that occur that don't have background checks and regulations. So we said, geez, if we can demonstrate that the rate of injuries increase after these gun shows, um, we might be able to impact uh, things at a policy level. So we looked at 259 gun shows in the United States in a broad, uh, geographically evenly distributed number of cities. And guess what we found? Looking at the two weeks before a gun show and the two weeks after, there is absolutely no difference in the rates of firearm injury. Now, this doesn't prove that regulating um, the sale of firearms at gun shows is, is a bad idea, idea or is ineffective, but it, it also calls into question, question how a simple solution like increased regulation of firearm sales at gun show isn't necessarily going to have a dramatic improvement or a dramatic reduction in the risk uh, of injury. So I'm going to stop here and turn this over to Dr. Dukleska, who's gonna talk about some really cool work that's been done within the city of Hartford, uh, looking at firearm injury and how it impacts uh, children uh, in our state. Dr. Dukleska. Uh, good morning. So um, I'm just gonna talk a little bit about um, how we can use data and a, really a data-driven approach um, in order to not only understand and inform our injury prevention efforts that are related to firearm injury, but also have the ability to track it over time to uh, demonstrate our impact. So I'm just gonna review a little bit, um, just the approach to uh, preventing firearm injuries. And this is sort of a CDC recommendation for what some of the integral elements are um, when thinking about um, injuring, uh, preventing injuries related to firearms. So something that Dr. Campbell talked about is providing data to inform action and just really our understanding about the trends that have existed in this country pertaining to firearm violence. The thing that I will focus on is conducting research and applying science to identify effective solutions. And something that Kevin will, or Dr. Borup will focus on is just promoting collaboration across multiple sectors in order to address the problem. So I just wanna introduce a concept um, to the group, which um, will, I don't think will be difficult for, um, to convince you that this is sort of true. And one is that geography is a determinant of health. So this is just a paper that was published in 2016 that looked at um, the shifting burden of heart disease in the United States. And it looked at over trends of heart disease over a span of 40 years. And it basically looked at, it, this paper sort of gave us insights into how this has changed. And 
essentially what you see here is just one of the contributors to heart disease, so diabetes, and how um, over the 40 years there's this um, sort of geospatial relationship that exists where certain parts of the country um, see higher rates of um, this cardiovascular, um, you know, this risk factor to cardiovascular disease. And what's interesting about this is that this is not random. And this is something that's a biosocial phenomenon, which essentially means that there's interplay between biology and the social environment as they contribute to heart disease. Now, sort of looking at how to use geography and geographic methods to better understand um, not only disease, but also firearm um, violence. So uh, geographic information systems, or GIS, is a computer system that essentially captures, stores, queries, analyzes, and displays geospatial data. Now, we'll probably all remember from either our epidemiology class, um, John Snow's map, um, which in the late 1800s, he essentially tracked out a cholera outbreak, um, and he was able to determine um, what cholera outbreak looked like um, based off of water pumps um, and the water pump at Broad Street, which was really a contributor to a major cholera outbreak at that time. But what John Snow's map was missing is an understanding of the populations at risk and the progression of this cholera outbreak over time. And if we take a more contemporary sort of approach in thinking about how we can use geography, so geography in terms of just space, so thinking about physical geography as sort of what John Snow um, had focused on. But some of the things that I'll be talking to you about is the importance and the focus of human geography here, specifically social geography, which is informed by the field of sociology. And this, as I will show you in the subsequent slides, which is some of the research that we're doing um, as part of the, our work with the Injury Prevention Center, is something that we can use beyond studying disease. Now, this is just an overview of our um, city. So um, the city of Hartford is divided into 49 uh, distinct census tracts, um, which are essentially outlined here. And then these are just some of the demographics that we see in the city of Hartford. As you can see, certain parts of the city are more populated. Um, in terms of the per capita income, there's also a very wide distribution among census tracts. Uh, there's also, um, again, descriptions of the minority populations and single-parent households, et cetera, that sort of help us understand our, um, the, the population of um, citizens that live in the city of Hartford. Now, what's in taking this to firearm injury and the burden of firearm um, violence to uh, children or to um, citizens in our city, one of the things that's unique about the city of Hartford is that since 2016, um, the entire city of Hartford has been covered by something called ShotSpotter. ShotSpotter is an acoustic firearm discharge event uh, detection system, and it essentially uses proprietary um, technology that utilizes acoustic sensors that detect, localize, and alert firearm discharges to law enforcement. The time from event to digital alert and localization is about 45 seconds, so it's fairly, fairly quick. And according to the manufacturer, the reported aggregate um, accuracy rate is 97% with less than 0.5 false positive rate. So pretty um, con uh, high confidence of being able to detect firearm discharges from other ambient noise that may be going on in the city. Now, these are the same 49 census tracts that I described to you, just the, uh, the demographics for the um, individuals living in Hartford. The couple of things that I want to draw your attention to, as you can see in the top panel here, is the each subsequent year where there was firearm discharges, so starting from 2017 to 2021. 
As you can see, incrementally, there has been an increase in firearm discharges that have occurred with nearly a doubling in the amount of firearm, firearms that were discharged between 2017 to 2021. And this is something that is statistically significant. Here, you can sort of see the same um, distribution with some of the data that Dr. Campbell even presented, where you see this increase or this sort of sinusoidal um, distribution and this essentially stable trend in firearm discharges. But we see is this significant increase that's pertaining or that was associated with um, COVID. Now, the one thing that I really want to highlight here is um, so. This data that I just shared with you says, you know, a firearm that was discharged. But during the um, the amount, you know, the time or the event that a firearm is discharged, there can be one bullet that's fired, or there can be, you know, five bullets that are fired, or something that's called a, a spray. And from 2017 to 2020, if we look at the independent firearm discharges, there was a little over 5,000 independent firearm discharges but over 18,000 rounds that were fired in the city of Hartford. So that means for every single time or every event that a firearm was discharged, nearly three bullets were fired during that, on average during that event. And if we take this a step further using the social vulnerability index, which is a something that has been validated by the CDC, and we look at some of the, um, the characteristics of the citizens um, in Hartford and where these firearm discharges are occurring. So if we look at, for example, the per capita income, and just to help with the interpretation of this graph, so areas that are low per capita income and high firearm discharges will sort of present with red. And what we, um, and in comparison, uh, percent minority, so high percent minority, um, as you can see um, here, and high firearm discharges. This, I joked um, earlier this morning, is like a, one of those math problems that we probably all remember from high school with the arrows, which is up, which is down. But what I want to demonstrate to you is that more socially vulnerable populations are seeing uh, these firearm discharges more frequently. So what we see is certain census tracts that are highlighted here and here experience the, major, the most of the burden that's pertaining to firearm uh, discharges and firearm violence in the city of Hartford. Now, you may be thinking that, you know, this is something that is just in the city of Hartford, but I think that nationally there is such a huge interest that's pertaining to this. Um, and we actually presented this work um, that we are doing just at our national pediatric surgical meeting um, in San Diego, which was um, a podium uh, presentation. But I think um, not only is this Grand Rounds relevant, but the work that we're doing sort of aligns with others, what others are doing on the national level. And even nationally, there's interest to see what are some, what are some of the work that we're doing here in Hartford. And the one thing that I want to close with is really that we're sort of seeing two pandemics that are going on at the same time to highlight what Dr. Salazar said. So we are seeing this, uh, this sort of complex social interaction in addition to medical um, interaction pertaining to COVID. And one thing that I was surprised Dr. Campbell didn't include, so this is um, the publication out of New England Journal just about the last, uh, that was published last month, that highlighted that for the first time in the United States history, the leading cause of mortality in children in the United States is firearm-related violence. So violence related to firearms is the number one killer um, of children in the United States. 
And what I would implore us to say is that we're actually living in two pandemics or something called a syndemic, where we're having an aggregation of two epidemics. So factors that sort of contribute to, um, to COVID-19 plus the firearm pandemic that is happening is sort of aggregating and causing a cumulative effect uh, pertaining to these two. Um, again, thank you, and I will pass it off to Dr. Borup that will talk a little bit about some of the hospital-based uh, violence intervention programs. All right, thank you. Um, I think it's important the way that uh, Dr. Dukleska uh, ended her segment talking about that New England Journal of Medicine article. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll repeat it. it. It's amazing that we live in a time where uh, those two lines have converged and passed, each, and passed each other. When I first began my career in injury prevention, road safety was the thing impacting children uh, the most. Car crashes, uh, pedestrian injuries, and anything involving motor vehicles. And, and we really emphasized um, a lot of work around this, including the teen driver laws in Connecticut that really made a difference. And as we've seen um, risk on the road for kids go down and their, their, their death rates go down, we've seen uh, an increase in, in firearm deaths to the point where I think in New England Journal of Medicine, I think they crossed paths around 2017, and they've only continued to uh, move away from each other. And, and children are more at risk today for being killed by a firearm than, than ever before. Um, and so a lot of our work is certainly going to, in the next few years, we'll focus on that. Today I'm here to talk to you about our hospital-based violence intervention program and what's been happening here in Hartford. Um, earlier in, in the year, in August, the city reached out to Connecticut Children's and asked if we would work with the other level one trauma centers in the city to develop a collaboration so that we could more effectively work together uh, to address violence in the city. We reached out to Trinity Health St. Francis and Hartford Hospital and their community partners at Mothers United Against Violence, Hartford Communities That Care, Encompass Youth Collaborative, and built over several months uh, an agreement to collaborate and to partner on all aspects of violence intervention and prevention. Um, and in the last month, we were awarded uh, some dollars from the American Recoveries uh, Plan to um, to strengthen what's already existing in the city. Uh, an important thing to note is that um, these programs are not new in the city and our community partners have been working for an incredibly long time on violence intervention work. But as we noted, uh, you know, firearm homicide now is the highest it's been since the mid-90s. Uh, and across the country, uh, the trends are similar. Young people, male, people who are black consistently have the highest rates and largest increases in violence. And Brendan talked about this a little bit, you know, in COVID and, and Dr. Dukleska did as well. What's going on? Uh, do we see, uh, we have seen in COVID-19 increased stressors, economic and social. Um, there have been disruptions in, in going to the doctor. Um, there has been strains across the country in law enforcement. We've seen gun purchasing uh, at the highest, probably at the highest rates ever even. It seems to increase and increase. So more firearms are available. And we've also seen uh, commensurate increases in intimate partner violence. Uh, and our country is now grappling with, with facing longstanding systematic uh, in, in inequities and structural racism, uh, which is also creating that instability in what we're seeing. 
Um, so what, what is uh, an HFIP? Uh, you know, through a trauma-informed approach to care, identify patients at risk for repeated injury, and then link them to these services. And that's why it's so important that we do this in partnership. Certainly the resources of the three level one trauma centers and our community groups, we are stronger together in, in putting in place this, these supports. And what does it mean? It means that uh, the various hospitals will have an HFIP specialist who will be able to connect with patients and make strong linkages to community resources. Um, what those HFIP specialists will be doing is doing uh, safety assessments. Are, are folks okay? Uh, can they go back to their home? Do they, do they need other supports, uh, social supports, whether it's housing, jobs, uh, healthcare, legal support, and really trying to, to make that connection. Now, some people uh, will ask, you know, what is, what is the evidence-based uh, behind all this work? And for HFIP programs, what we know is that there is limited research out there right now. Uh, Dr. Campbell talked about various kinds of studies. There are two RCTs, randomized controlled trials, in the literature around HFIPs, and one of them came to inconclusive results, and the other RCT uh, showed a trend uh, towards a, a really positive change, uh, but it wasn't statistically significant. And both studies uh, really suffered from uh, low sample sizes. And it, it's very hard with incredibly low sample sizes to measure a small effect. You need a really big change uh, to be able to see that. So we're also hoping that through uh, this partnership of three trauma centers and our linkage to the Health Alliance for Violence Intervention, which is a national organization that with all of these HFIP programs going together, we can start to build the evidence to show whether they work or not. What we do know is some of the other studies out there on HFIPs, they weren't necessarily RCTs, but did show that we can impact re-injury rates. Um, there have been um, uh, studies out there that show that uh, re-injury rates can range anywhere from 7% to 65%, and with an average being around 27% uh, re-injury rate. So if you come in for a violent injury, there's a good chance that we're gonna see you again. When you implement an HFIP program, we can uh, reduce, cut in half even, uh, your risk of re-injury, uh, and that's a good thing. Uh, it helps uh, people, it reduces costs, um, it, it's a great program to prevent that re-injury. So again, not a one-time event. On, on the screen, you'll see some diagnosis codes. These are the codes when we monitor our, our own system, look at the statewide data when we're talking about violence uh, and violent re-injury. These are the codes we're looking at. So uh, some of the needs. When we do intervene with someone who's been impacted by violence, what, what are the most common needs? And when we uh, consult with the uh, the, with the hobby, we find that 51% um, uh, uh, need appropriate mental health care. 48% uh, are accessing some victims of crime assistance. 36% uh, uh, cite employment, 30% housing, and 28% have educational needs. And we'll be looking at these national numbers as we implement the, uh, or strengthen the implementation of the program here to really collect the data we need uh, to show what are we doing right and, and where do we need, where do we need uh, improvements. And we'll compare it to this data to see what do the needs look like in Hartford. Um, as we were building this collaborative, it's important to recognize these are the people in the groups um, from Trinity Health, uh, Hartford Hospital, 
Hartford Communities of Care, Mothers United Against Violence, and Compass. And uh, getting everyone to work together, I, I really have to give a lot of credit to our community partners and to the other hospitals for agreeing to work together. You know, it is hard to come out of our, our silos, our single system silos, to kind of work together. And everyone has done a really great job of uh, coming out with positive intent to work and engage together. And we really have a, a, a strong a strong partnership that going forward over the next three years is really poised to uh, focus um, our efforts to make some change. So how did we get here? Um, because it's not new, and I said that in 2004, Hartford Communities at Care established a first HVIP partnership with uh, St. Francis, and they've served over 1,800 uh, victims of crime since its inception. In 2007, I was on the, uh, the panel of the city that awarded a grant to start their youth street worker program based on models in Boston and Providence. And here, um, we selected Hartford Community Care and Compass Youth Collaborative for those first grants. Um, in 2019, uh, we began meeting as a statewide group led by Andrew Woods at Hartford Communities at Care to bring together all the intervention programs in the state at uh, Yale New Haven and Bridgeport and elsewhere. Um, and this uh, statewide group will also continue to look at statewide data and, and uh, really figure out ways that uh, we can broaden even this Hartford collaboration. And then in September, that's when this uh, partnership began. And in April, we signed the contract with the city and our HVIP specialists at Children and Trinity Health be actually began working. So um, this is actually the first time uh, that probably the three hospitals are collaborating uh, on this issue and sharing staff to do this violence intervention work. One of the limitations we've had in the past for uh, this work is data collection and measuring outcomes. And as part of this uh, contract and this agreement uh, with our partners, we will be the central data collection hub so that we can bring in data from all the partners, put it together, and get a good picture of what's going on in, with the city. Um, our community partners, the key role they play is uh, they have credibility and trust and lived experience, and they can really make that connection with families that will make a difference. Um, you know, as hospitals, we do what we can to uh, fix the physical injury, even address some of the uh, um, um, mental health uh, needs that folks have it. But when they go back out in the community, they really need uh, that long-term follow-up care, and no one can provide it better than our community partners. Okay, let's see. Uh, the way this is structured, and I want to go through that, we actually have daily rounds right now around the medical rounding model. So uh, Trinity Health and Connecticut Children's, because they have hired staff, meet every morning and, and talk about uh, what the challenges were in the past day, the past week, and what we can expect going ahead. As others partner join in with their teams, Hart Hartford Healthcare will join in soon. And then our partners in the community will be getting these daily rounding updates. And this has never taken place before, where we have a daily update on what's going on in the city around violence and aftercare. And then we'll also have weekly team meetings where the leadership of these groups gets together to troubleshoot uh, what's happening. The routine data sharing is a big part of this. And we'll finally be able to get at some of the metrics. Um, which I'll talk about in a minute. So what happens in an HVIP program? I, uh, I talked about it a little bit, but it's safety screening, safety planning, referral to these resources, 
And uh, the crisis intervention is, is hugely important. What our community partners do at Hartford Communities, their compass, uh, they even will go into the community and stop violence from happening when they hear about it. And this intervention piece, even when they hear about retaliation, they go in and try to cool things down so, it, um, so that uh, violence doesn't take place. Um, with case management, again, we're approaching this um, with a, a model of goal concordant care. So one way of uh, approaching um, uh, a family is to look and kind of assess them and tell them what their needs are. That's not what we're doing here. We're working with patient families together to help them help us understand what their needs are. And based on what they set as priorities, we will address those needs with our community partners and put that, uh, you know, that family experience first. Uh, what do they think is important in their life? What do they think can really make a difference for them? Uh, and we'll follow this long term over uh, one month, two months, six months, a year uh, to really see how that, how that care coordination is working. Are we actually able to connect them to those services and do they feel better off? All right, so evaluation and monitoring. Uh, what are the kinds of things we're going to be measuring? So process objectives like um, the percent of people successfully referred, the number of contact hours we have with them. Uh, how long did it take us to get to the bedside? Uh, how long did it take before they were connected to community partners? And then some uh, more short-term impact. So within, the, within 12 months, uh, what's happened? Are we actually following up with them? Uh, as we implement psychometric scales like conflict resolution, uh, looking at conflict resolution skills, uh, or looking at emotional regulation, uh, are those showing improvements? And then finally, more longer term uh, outcome objectives, are those uh, violent uh, re-injury rates? Um, do we have a difference in injury severity? Uh, what about employment? There is research out there with HFIP programs that shows that those who engage with an HFIP program, patients who engage, um, show higher levels of employment long term than those who do not. And then if we can continue this program long enough and collect this data long enough, what we hope to find and what we expect to find is a change in graduation rates, an improvement in school attendance and an improvement in graduation. So uh, Dr. Campbell put up a slide that talked about prevention strategies and the public health approach. I, I think he listed primordial prevention, primary prevention. We tend to talk about primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. And these HFIP programs are mostly secondary and tertiary prevention with some uh, primary prevention aspects. And one of the um, pieces of work we have in front of us is to work with this broad partnership to not only engage in this violence intervention work, but to really over the next couple of years develop a primary prevention plan with strong recommendations on what we can do to support communities so violence doesn't start in the first place. Um, so we know that these community and street outreach programs have some promising results, but more research is needed. We, we know that, um, uh, or we expect to find a reduction in uh, re-injury and a reduction in retaliatory actions. We know that um, we can have a lasting impact on families and we will measure this over the long term. Uh, and we have to see how we can fit in some of these therapeutic approaches 
uh, to lessen harm from violence exposure. Uh, some of our groups, like Mothers United Against Violence, will be bringing on uh, someone who can engage in that type of therapeutic work long term. Uh, and in addition, um, our, um, the injury center itself here at Children's will bring on an evaluation specialist so that we can start taking a look at how can we, how can we implement rigorous research so that we can build that evidence base behind hospital-based violence intervention programs. So here is the uh, slide that really shows uh, the, the realm of violence on primary, uh, secondary, and tertiary prevention programs. And right now, we're really in that the trauma side of things. If you look down, let's see if I can use this. If you look down here, our HFIP programs are really down in this area, trained to recognize trauma, screening, providing trauma-informed care, and of course, working on long-term wraparound services. However, where more work needs to be done in Hartford is in this area, in primary prevention, and really ramping up a primary prevention plan. Now, there is no one solution to firearm violence. Uh, the HFIP program isn't going to solve it. It's one of many approaches. Uh, the city has outlined uh, a number of efforts that are taking place, including uh, the HFIP program. One of them is Project Longevity, which looks at those who are most likely to offend and, addr and address what's happening with them. You have their new heart team, which is this differential uh, response. When you call 911, you may get police, but depending on what the issue is, now they'll send out social workers uh, to work with you. Uh, so Project Longevity, the heart team, and there's also a, a re-entry center uh, in Hartford now, which they're strengthening uh, to really work with those coming back into society so they have positive long-term outcomes. All of these things together may very well make a difference. We know that um, years ago in Boston, in the mid-90s, there was something called the Boston Miracle. And what this was was a, a period of time for two years running where uh, Hartford, or where Boston reduced its uh, firearm deaths for youth to zero for two years in a row. And, and the way they did this was really a, a, a multi-pronged approach to addressing violence in that city. And um, I wish I had pulled the graph, but they show a graph as they added more and more programs to address violence, they saw the violence rates go down. So that's what we need to do, implement strong programs and look for opportunities to address uh, additional needs. Um, but um, I'm, I'm certainly will we'll come back in a grand rounds in the future to talk about the results of our HFIP program a year or two years down the line so that uh, we can all take a look at and see were, were these efforts effective? And if they weren't, what do we need to do to strengthen them? But uh, thank you. and being presentation and the work uh, from the, uh, the three of you in the Injury Prevention Center. So if you can come up to the uh, podium, I have uh, uh, some questions and comments. Uh, from uh, Danielle Warren-Diaz uh, from our HIV program, and Danielle has a, a really, I think, interesting question uh, about the data. It says, that unfortunately, these data are used to diagnose neighborhoods as unhealthy places to live, which ensures the status quo. Uh, seems like the, the keener these types of data are getting or the, um, the more despair the communities feel. So, so talk about the, the GIS data and, and how, how can that be turned around and actually used in a positive way as opposed to labeling a neighborhood? 
Yes, thank you. That's an actual excellent question. I think what the data does is one of the ways to, um, you know, to to see it is to, you know, just to it kind of reaffirms you're like, oh, geez, the, um, you know, the the people that are impacted by violence are, you know, people who have, you know, all of these social disadvantages that they're experiencing. But actually, uh, an excellent way to use the data is all of the primary prevention measures that um, Dr. Borup had talked about and all of these things that we can go within the community and work with the community. And I also think that there's other um, things pertaining to just, um, you know, social equality that can be implemented on the community level to try to impact that change. So I think that by having this data, it actually highlights that and it gives us the ability to then track it over time and to understand how that that may change. And, and sort of r related comment to that, Katrina, the uh, the areas that you highlight are actually uh, neighborhoods as opposed to many of the other areas, which are office buildings, and, and obviously they're not populated uh, generally. So do you take that into account into to that GIS map that you show? Yeah, so these are, the the data is actually displayed in census tracts, which are predetermined by, you know, sort of on a national level. Um, and um, so yes, we do take into account. The other thing, which I didn't share this data in this forum, but this is what we had presented uh, at APSA, was we actually overlaid uh, schools where children go, schools and daycares, where children go to school and daycare in Hartford and where these firearm dischargers happened. And so when we looked at some of the census tracts that were um, hotspots, so to speak, there was over a thousand children that went to school that potentially were being impacted by this firearm violence that's going on in the background. So yes, it's true there are areas where that are, you know, office buildings that people may not necessarily be going to work, that, you know, people are going to work that may not necessarily be getting exposed to firearm violence. But again, in my mind, this again just highlights um, the need within the community for us to be able to impart change and to have a discussion and prevention measures regarding firearm violence. Right, thank you. Um, from uh, one of our pediatricians, Dr. Pitigoff, giving the doubling shooting incidents in Hartford from 2017 to date, is there any correlation to juvenile justice reforms uh, that perhaps made it more difficult to incarcerate youth for their safety? So I think that's a, a great uh, question, Dr. Pedagoff. The, um, you know, one of the things that we looked at is uh, dur during the pandemic, we noticed uh, an, an uptick in uh, the number of uh, gun injuries that we were seeing at Connecticut Children's uh, to the tune of about 400%. And when I was talking with some of our colleagues on the Hartford police, um, you know, as to why this might be, they talked about, you know, you don't really, at least I didn't think about this, the, the courts being closed down, you know, people not being working, uh, working, you know, the social um, uh, pressures of, of unemployment that are impacting some of the disadvantaged communities in Hartford. I think all of those things together led to this. And this wasn't something, as I showed in one of my slides, that was unique to Hartford. We saw this increase in violence across the country. And when we drilled down on, on, you know, what specifically was it, it wasn't suicide, it wasn't unintentional shooting, it was interpersonal violence that, that increased. Thank you from uh, one of your colleagues, Dr. Nod. Uh, a very clear, comprehensive explanation of firearm violence nationally and in our community, as well uh, as the exciting news that Connecticut Children's is leading HIVIP uh, to combat the problem at an institutional community level. So thank you, Dr. Scamble, uh, Burrup, and Dukleska from Dr. Nod. So it's just a, a, a 
kudos to, to you guys on that, and I and I um, I would echo that for sure. Um, the I guess the echoing that first comment from Danielle, um, give us a sense. Uh, maybe Kevin, this would be for you. The a sense of how the work you're preparing to to in, in embark, or you've already started, will give hope to the neighborhoods that are mostly affected. You know, give us a, a sense of how this will change based on the work that we're doing with uh, with Hartford and Trinity. Yeah, thanks, Danielle. Um, you know, we're not doing just one thing, right? The HFIP program is just part of what the Office for Community and Child Health is doing. Uh, folks may be aware of the North Hartford Ascend Pipeline Project, which is really focused on, on building um, on the, you know, you talked about an approach, are we taking a deficits approach or kind of a strengths-based approach? And, you know, that North Hartford Ascend Pipeline is really looking at a strengths-based approach and uh, in addressing community priorities and uh, where do they want to see those investments. And I, I think that is really long-term uh, where we need to be. Part of the HFIP program is, you know, frankly, that crisis intervention, right? We're working with people who've suffered harm and, and asking them, uh, what 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 do they need in, in their lives uh, to move on from that and to move on successfully? So it really is driven uh, by the patient families on on how we respond to this, um, and I think that's what's going to make that successful and that that strong linkage with our community partners who really are in the driver's seat of how we respond will 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 really make this successful. We we are I like to say you know we Connecticut Children's and the other hospital partners, we're junior partners to our community partners. And I'm just playing a coordinating role uh, among all of these partners. But it's really the community that's in the driver's seat for this uh, for this HFIP program and for the Ascend Pipeline project. And so hopefully as all of these projects go together, we can strengthen the assets in the community. And you know, the, the community um, will, will end up solving it uh, what's going on in the community. Uh, they'll do it for themselves uh, uh, with uh, supports that institutions like Connecticut can, uh, Children's can provide as as a, a partner and, and building that trust with the community so that we can do that. Thank you, Kevin. And, and yeah, I think we, you know, I'm extremely proud of the work of the Injury Prevention Center and how involved they are with changing the dynamics that occur within within our most affected neighborhoods and communities. But it is a statewide effort uh, where everyone has to be involved is not simply a community and so i agree with with you on that um, uh, brendan any last remarks before we close well i'll, I'll just uh one say thanks to dr borup and dr kleska for for uh for presenting this work and you know i think it, it it's it's an important step for us to take in the in in, in addressing these issues because you know we've, we've developed a trauma center that takes very good care of patients clinically but if we're going to make a difference in this space, we have to think about it differently and find creative ways to uh, not only care for these patients, but to prevent injuries uh, from occurring in the first place. And this uh, requires uh, taking a trauma-informed care approach and uh, you know, normalizing the prevention practices that might make a difference for the uh, injured kids we care for. So. So thank you to the three of you for an outstanding presentation and uh, for all the work that you're currently doing and that you will be doing uh, within our community. It's really, truly outstanding. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Uh, we, we do have the research and education series. We'll be continuing today from noon to 1 p.m. The Zoom link is found on the internet. 
Uh, we'll see you again uh, the next Tuesday for Grand Rounds. Uh, please be safe and, uh, you know, take care of each other today. You know, be, be kind to each other. That's where everything begins. So uh, uh, thank you for joining us. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at ConnecticutChildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.